When we talk about the Tudors, we tend to think of Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth I, two larger-than-life monarchs whose reigns, spanning 83 years, account for 70% of the Tudor dynasty's reign in England. But sandwiched between these two towering monarchs are three people who were proclaimed king or queen and are just forgotten. Two are crowned, Edward VI and Mary I. And one was proclaimed but never crowned and is often called the Nine Days Queen, Lady Jane Grey. This is very briefly their story. When Henry VIII died in 1547, he was succeeded by his son, Edward VI, the child of Henry and his third wife, Jane Seymour. Edward was just nine years old. The young prince did have half-sisters from both his father's previous marriages. Mary, the daughter of Henry's first marriage to Catherine of Aragon, was 21, year, 21 years his senior, whilst uh, the, the daughter from the marriage to Anne Boleyn, wife number two, uh, Elizabeth, was four years older than him. Both girls were deemed illegitimate by law. They were not classed as royal princesses. They were just called ladies. But, somewhat confusingly, Henry had them added back into the royal line of succession by an Act of Parliament in 1543. And we're going to come back to that later, because it's important. Crowned within a month of ascending the throne, uh, Henry had specifically left instructions as to how the new boy king should rule England. Young Edward would be assisted by a Regency Council of 16 nobles, who would effectively rule England until he achieved, uh, achieved adulthood. The problem with Regency Councils then and later in history and earlier in history is it's uh, an opportunity for nobles to basically increase their own powers. None more so than Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset. Seymour was actually the older brother of Jane Seymour, wife number three of Henry VIII and the mother to the new king, Edward VI. And as uncle to the new king, Seymour persuaded the council to make him Lord Protector of the Realm with almost quasi-regal powers. Not everyone supported this elevated status of the Duke of Somerset, in particular his younger brother, Thomas Seymour, who vied with his older brother for control of their young nephew. Thomas actually went so far as to marry Henry VIII's widow, Catherine Parr, and they established a household at uh, Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire. Also in this household and under their care were the king's half-sister, Lady Elizabeth, and also cousin once removed, Lady Jane Grey. Thomas saw these two sort of royal ladies as pawns in his own power struggle with his elder brother, and he seemed to take an unhealthy interest in Elizabeth until Catherine Parr banished her from the household. Uh, Catherine Parr was pregnant from Thomas at this stage, so I guess she would be a bit upset, wouldn't she? A year after Edward's ascension, in 1548, Catherine Parr died in childbirth. But before Thomas Seymour could turn his attentions back to Elizabeth, uh, his ambitions came to a shuddering halt. The council, under the direction of his own older brother, had him arrested and beheaded. But Edward Seymour's own time in the ascendancy was about to be eclipsed. Seymour, Duke of Somerset, owed his position as Lord Protector on his blood tie to the King and also his prowess as a warrior. Having fought for Henry VIII both in France and Scotland, Somerset had continued in this manner under the new King. The ongoing war with the Scots, which was actually known as the Rough Wooing because the Scots had rejected Henry's idea of marrying his young son, Edward, to their infant, her queen, Mary Stuart. 
That's right, Mary Queen of Scots and Edward VI of England might have been an item. And how would history have been different if that had happened? Anyway, that's not for now, okay. Suffice to say that when the Scots rejected the treaty, Henry went to war. And this war was still bubbling away when Edward came to the throne, and so Seymour went north with an army. At the Battle of Pinkie outside Edinburgh, the English won what was to be the last battle fought between England and Scotland as separate nations. But the young Queen of the Scots was whisked away from the English to the safety of France, and despite installing English garrisons as far north as Dundee in Fife, Seymour had achieved no strategic advantage and was basically draining the already meagre treasury of England with his army of occupation. And at the same time, economic hardship and political, or more correctly religious, upheavals uh, that not least were being unleashed by young Edward were creating a volatile situation back in England. Finally, in 1549, just two years after Edward's ascension, the storm broke. In Norfolk, there was a rebellion led by Robert Kett, called Kett's Rebellion, in protest against landowners encroaching on ancient common grazing land. And then down in Devon and Cornwall, the southwest of England, there was a rising against the introduction of the Book of Common Prayer, which we're going to talk about again in a little while. In both of these cases, Somerset had to resort to uh, armed power to restore order, resulting in over 5,000 being killed down in the West Country. So, under pressure of a pointless Scottish campaign, an empty treasury, and with law and order seemingly breaking down in England, the Privy Council turned on Edward Seymour. The Duke of Somerset was removed from office, and a couple of years later he was executed. He was replaced as Lord Protector by his rival, John Dudley, Earl of Warwick, soon to be Duke of Northumberland. And Dudley was to remain in power for the rest of Edward's short reign. Edward actually only reigned for six years. He never reached his age of majority when he could govern in his own right. And so for, for both those reasons, that short reign and he was always the child king, his impact on English history is pretty limited. Although the area where he did have an impact was in entrenching the English Reformation. His father, Henry VIII, might have broken with Rome, but that was more to do with politics than it was any sort of religious doctrine. Yet when Henry VIII died, he was fundamentally still a Catholic. Edward VI, however, was firmly in the Protestant camp. He actively endorsed the policies of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, uh, to move away from the last vestiges of, uh, to move the Church of England away from the last vestiges of the Roman Catholic Church. So in 1549, uh, he passed the Act of Uniformity, which dictated by law that from now on, all church services were to be held in English, not Latin. And in that same year, uh, Cranmer introduced the Book of Common Prayer, opposition of which led to that rising down in Devon and Cornwall, which we just talked about and which Seymour had struggled to deal with. And by the way, the Book of Common Prayer is still the foundation of the current Church of England services. But time for Edward was running out. In February 1553, he fell seriously ill, and by the June, he knew he was dying, most likely of tuberculosis. Whilst he seemed to take his imminent demise in his stride, no doubt reinforced by his strong Protestant faith, it was the future of that very faith that was actually giving him cause for concern in these last days. Because the next person in the line of succession, as outlined in Henry VIII's third and final act of succession, was his half-sister, the devoutly Catholic Lady Mary. Edward feared 
that she would re reverse the Protestant reforms that he had overseen in England. Not only was Mary's religion a problem for Edward, but so was the fact that she was still considered uh, illegitimate, as indeed was her other half-sister, the Protestant Lady Elizabeth. Edward decided to directly contravene that Act of Parliament passed ten years before. The problem was that with death looming, he didn't have time to get a new Act of Succession through Parliament, so he decided on a quick alternative. The dying king drew up a document called the Device of Succession, in which he ruled Mary and Elizabeth out of succession, and instead decided to follow the line through his father's younger sister, unfortunately also called Mary Tudor. This particular Mary Tudor had married the King of France, but when he died soon afterwards, she then married Henry VIII's trusted friend and advisor, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. They had a daughter, Frances, who went on to marry the great-grandson of Elizabeth Woodville, Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk. And they had three daughters, the eldest of whom was Lady Jane Grey. Now, back in the Act of Succession, Henry VIII had actually passed over Frances, but it included her three daughters in the line of succession. But, and this is a big but, they would only assume the throne if Edward and then Mary and then Elizabeth all died childless. Well, Edward decided to fast-track the children of Francis Grey. Initially, he determined that uh, the women's male offspring would inherit the throne, but as his own days were drawing, drawing nigh and they didn't have any children, he changed his mind and actually included the women in their own right in the line of succession. And he therefore named Lady Jane Grey as his heir, a Protestant and a definitely a legitimate member of the Tudor dynasty. Now, some suggest that this change of heart was actually engineered by the Lord Protector, John Dudley, now, as I say, elevated to the Duke of Northumberland. The same John Dudley, whose son, Guildford Dudley, had only weeks before married Lady Jane Grey. On the 21st of June, 100 notables of the realm, including nobles, senior clergy and the Aldermen of London, signed the device for the succession in front of King Edward. Edward VI died on the 6th of July, 1553. Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, like a modern-day parliamentary whip, persuaded and pressured the Privy Council to support Edward's device for succession over the old Parliamentary Act. Mary, who'd been following events very closely, fled to Framlingham Castle in Suffolk, well away from the grasp of the Lord Protector and safe uh, amongst the Catholic-leaning aristocrats of East Anglia. And on the 10th of July, four days after the King's death, the Privy Council finally proclaimed Lady Jane Grey as Queen of England. And so one of the saddest succession stories in England's history starts to unfold. Lady Jane Grey was born either in 1536 or 1537. There seems to be a bit of confusion. And there's also confusion as to whether she was born in London or at Bradgate Park in Leicestershire. So whichever date you pick, Lady Jane Grey was 16 or 17 when she was proclaimed Queen. She was, by all accounts, well-educated, and she took a very keen interest in religious debate. This may have been encouraged, actually, by Henry VIII's widow, Catherine Parr, in whose household Lady Jane had resided at uh, Sudley Castle. Catherine Parr's Protestant beliefs may have strongly influenced Jane, who certainly held strong Protestant views at the time of her procl proclamation and for the rest of her life. As the proclamation 
was read at various points around the city of London, it was met with silence. It's one of those strange English quirks that the Protestants of England seemed to accept that Mary was their legitimate queen, even though she was a Catholic, rather than accepting Jane being brought in to save the very Protestant Reformation that they all supported. Lady Jane Grey, or should we call her Queen Jane, was now taken by Northumberland to the Tower of London, the traditional residence of English kings before their coronations. Of course, it was also the fortress in the capital city, just in case the population turned nasty. That very day, the Privy Council in London received a letter from Lady Mary in East Anglia protesting at their decision and pointing out that by Act of Parliament, she was the rightful heir. It was obvious that with Mary still at large and gathering supporters, many of whom were armed up in Suffolk, that England was actually in danger of falling into a civil war. Northumberland decided to act against her. On the 14th of July, he marched out of London at the head of 3,000 troops heading for East Anglia. The following day, he reached Cambridge and there he paused both to wait for reinforcements and indeed to see what Mary would do with this show of force. The answer was that Mary was the daughter of Henry VIII and indeed the long-suffering Spanish princess Catherine of Aragon and it was just not in her nature to back down. And more and more Englishmen, maybe 20,000 actually, flocked to her cause at Framlingham Castle. Not all of them were Catholics either. Many believe that despite her religion, Mary was legally the next in line. Basically, Henry's Act of Parliament trumped Edward's device for the succession. Meanwhile, with Northumberland stuck up in Cambridge, the Privy Council in London started to have second thoughts about the course of events that they had now taken. And finally, on the 19th of July, just nine days after proclaiming Jane as Queen, they did a complete about turn and publicly proclaimed for Mary. Northumberland was totally wrong-footed and he had a choice. He could either fight a losing cause or he could save his skin. And he chose the latter, actually having the audacity to proclaim Mary Queen in Cambridge. But it wasn't to save his skin. He was arrested a few days later and executed within the month. On the 3rd of August, 1553, accompanied by her half-sister, the Protestant Lady Elizabeth, and 800 nobles and gentlemen, Mary entered London in triumph. Bells rang, ships on the River Thames fired salutes, the common people came out to cheer her. And as the cannon at the Tower of London boomed in salute at the new Tudor Queen, Lady Jane Grey, the nine-day Queen, awaited her fate. She didn't have long to wait. Lady Jane, her husband, Guildford Dudley, and the Archbishop, uh, Archbishop Cranmer were put on trial on the 13th of November. The charge? High treason. The verdict was never really going to be in doubt. Lady Jane Grey, now actually simply referred to as Jane Grey, was found guilty and sentenced at the Queen's pleasure to either beheading or the traditional female punishment for treason, burning at the stake. Queen Mary demurred. She saw Lady Jane for what she was, really, a pawn in ambitious men's games. And the Nine Days Queen was imprisoned in relative comfort at the Tower of London for the duration. Whilst all this was going on, Mary, now crowned Queen Mary I, was on a mission to restore England to, as she saw it, the true faith of Catholicism. Mary is mostly remembered as Bloody Mary, who tried to reverse the Reformation by violence. What is forgotten, actually, is she was a groundbreaking monarch. Mary 
was the very first queen regnant. In other words, queen in her own right. All the other queens up until this time in English history have been consorts of kings. Now granted, Matilda and indeed Lady Jane Grey have been proclaimed queen, but neither of them been crowned. Mary had actually been crowned at Westminster Abbey. The following July 1554, Mary married Philip of Spain. At that stage, he hadn't actually inherited the Spanish throne. So to beef him up a bit before the marriage to the Queen of England, after all, his father, Charles V, gave him the, the Kingdom of Naples and the, the titular title of King, King of Jerusalem. Uh, titular because the Muslims had captured Jerusalem some time ago and, and it wasn't a Christian kingdom anymore. So for a little bit of tittle-tattle in English history for you, okay, Queen Mary, Mary I, Bloody Mary, was also Queen, titular, of Jerusalem. Lady Jane Grey did not see the marriage celebrations. Whilst many Protestants, English men and women had been willing to accept a Catholic as their legal sovereign, they drew the line at a marriage with Catholic Spain. They feared that Philip, as King of England, Spain would start to interfere in, in the internal government of England. And as Protestants, they also feared that Mary's enthusiasm to return England to Rome would be backed up by force by Philip's Spanish Inquisition. And of course they feared that Mary and Philip would produce a Catholic dynasty. So in January 1554, three months after her coronation, seven months before her wedding, Mary was faced by a Protestant rebellion led by Thomas Wyatt. The, the rebels marched on London where they, were, where they were defeated before they stormed the walls. But despite crushing that rebellion, Mary was naturally shaken. You know, it didn't help that one of the ringleaders of the failed Wyatt's rebellion was actually Henry Grey, Duke of Suffolk, Lady Jane Grey's father. And Mary came to the conclusion that whilst Lady Jane had played no role in the plot, she was nevertheless a rallying point for disgruntled Protestant subjects. And she had to be eliminated. Lady Jane Grey was executed on Tower Green inside the walls of the Tower of London on the 12th of February. She was still a teenager. In fact, Lady Jane Grey's execution was delayed for three days as Mary gave, her, uh, gave the Nine Days Queen the opportunity to re-embrace Catholicism. She refused and went to her death as a Protestant. The remaining four years of Mary's reign were, were marked by uh, an attempts to reverse the Reformation, the loss of Calais and phantom pregnancies. In February 1555, the first of 300 Protestants were burnt at the stake for heresy. They included, uh, over time, uh, Archbishop Cranmer, the man who had judged her mother's marriage to Henry VIII, null and void. The moral there? Never cross a Tudor. Despite the burnings, her attempts to roll back the Reformation failed. I mean, she was unable to restore lands to the church and her policies of burning heretics at the stake alienated many neutrals in the, in the kingdom. On the foreign front, her links with Spain were never popular. When Philip pressurised his wife to join him in the war against France, England lost the port of Calais, their last foothold on continental Europe. I mean, Calais actually was, interestingly, was actually a drain on English resources. So they were actually probably well rid of the port. But symbolically, it was a blow to English pride and a PR disaster for a queen who was already under pressure for failing harvests and her overzealous counter-reformation. Twice during her reign, uh, Mary suffered from phantom pregnancies. But the long-desired heir for her and Philip 
never arrived. Whilst we often see Lady Jane Grey's story as a sad one, maybe Mary's was sad too. Again, think about this. She was born a royal princess. For 16 years, she had been Henry VIII's sole legitimate heir, and he showered uh, her with gifts. When she was 10, her father had made her president of the Council of Wales and the Marches, the same position that Henry's older brother, Prince Arthur, had held. And, and like Arthur, she was given her own court at Ludlow Castle in Shropshire. So <laughs> whilst desperately wanting a male heir, Henry was obviously grooming his daughter for power just in case. And then in her teenage years, she saw her parents grow apart and finally her father dump her mother unceremoniously. And with that divorce, Mary was declared illegitimate and she was removed from the line of succession. She was actually relegated from being a princess to a mere lady. And then finally, she was brought back into the line of succession. But uh, right to the very end, Henry refused to accept her as a legitimate daughter. And just for good measure, her half-brother, Edward, tried to remove her once, uh, once more from the line of succession, and the Privy Council had actually proclaimed, proclaimed Lady Jane Grey, a far-off cousin, instead of her. I think a modern psychiatrist might deem her to be ever so slightly damaged. And maybe she deserves more attention than we tend to give her. Mary died in November 1558, probably from influenza, aged 42. The crown now passed to her Protestant half-sister, Lady Elizabeth. And under the stewardship of Lady Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, England was to enter a golden age. A golden age, actually, that some of its financial foundations had been laid by Mary and some of her economic reforms. And that golden age eclipsed the 11-year period where we had uh, Edward VI, uh, Lady Jane Grey and Mary I. They are in many respects uh, forgotten in the Tudor story and the story of England. And yet this short piece of our history raises some tantalising questions. Here's one. Did Edward's device for the succession trump Henry's Act of Parliament? In other words, was the elevation of Lady Jane Grey a coup? by the Protestants, or was Mary's refusal to acknowledge the Privy Council's proclamation actually a coup instead? And here's another debate. Mary's counter-reformation is seen nowadays as a hiccup on England's Protestant journey, a bump in the road between Henry's break with Rome, Edward's Book of Common Prayer, and the Protestant ascendancy of Elizabeth in her golden age. And as England's Protestant identity grew over the next 200 years, that was a very suitable narrative which we've inherited. But let's just pause for a moment. As I said earlier, Henry wasn't really a Protestant. You know, essentially, the Church of England at the end of his reign was Catholic, just without the Roman bits of it. The Pope and Latin had been replaced by the King and English, but the Mass remained, bishops remained, the clergy still had to remain celibate as they do in the Catholic Church. Large parts of the population were lukewarm, if not actually opposed, to the Reformation. Indeed, Edward faced the prayer book rebellion down in Devon and Cornwall. When Mary entered London in triumph in 1553, she might have been pushing at an open door. And maybe Mary's biggest downfall was that she just didn't have time. Yes, she, she executed religious enemies. But, you know, compared to the 50,000 uh, opponents that her father executed, yet Bloody Mary's 300 doesn't actually seem that monstrous. Mary died aged 42 after a reign of just five years. Her father had lived to 55. Her grandfather, Henry VII, had lived to 52. 
What if Mary had lived to a similar age? What if instead of a five-year reign, she'd ruled England for 15, 20 years? Given another 10 years, could she have reversed the reforms of Henry VIII and Edward VI? And rather than Mary being seen as a hiccup on England's Protestant journey, maybe we'd be looking back and seeing Edward as a hiccup on England's Catholic journey. Edward VI, Lady Jane Grey, Queen Mary I. Three forgotten Tudors. But maybe they shouldn't be.